thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. It is our prayer that it is a blessing to you. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the message. First, we would love to connect with you. You can find us on Facebook at New Grace BC. Also, be sure to check out our website, reachingroanoke.com. There, you can find out more about who we are and where we are going as a church. Again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. Uh, we began a series a couple weeks ago entitled Created for Significance. We are, are looking at how we as God's children can have a life that matters for something more than just ourselves. A life that matters for eternity. And, and every one of us want to have a life of significance. We want to, to do something with our life that, that glorifies God as children of God. We want to do something with our life that, that makes a difference in someone else's life. But sadly, many times we end up living self-centered, selfish, self-focused lives. Because we're, we're more concerned about what we think we need, what we want, what can, is best for us, than really being concerned about what matters to God. And so last week we saw that how to, how to live a life of purpose. And living a life that has a greater purpose than ourselves is living a life that honors and pleases God. It's a life that obeys God over anyone else. It's a life that lifts God up over everything else and draws all men to Him. Another, way, another key point uh, to living a life of significance is living a life that is focused on what matters to God. And I know everyone here tonight is a professing believer, and so I believe if we ask each of us individually, does what matter to God matter to you, we would all say yes. We want what matters to God to matter to us. We want what is important to God to be important to us, but does our life back that up? Does our life show that we are living a life that is focused on what matters to God? Because typically what matters to us is things of this world. And I understand that we, we need these, we need to worry about these things. We need to focus on the things. We've got to focus on work. We've got to have a job. We've got to pay for our bills. We've got to support our family. We've got to take care of things around the house. We've got to, we've got to make sure we're, we're good people and good citizens. We're taking care of our kids and taking care of our spouses. And so then we've got to, we, we focus on entertainment. We focus on, on, self, on vacations. And look, I don't care. I love vacations. A lot of our church family is on vacation this week. And, uh, well, actually, one of our church families on vacation this week. They just consist of 37 people. Uh, and so one family that makes up half the church is on vacation this week. And I think vacations are necessary. Vacations are important. And so we, we, you, you as a family, you need vacation time where you get away from everything with just you and your kids. And look, I'll be honest with you, you as a couple need vacations without the kids. Where it's just you and your spouse focusing on each other. I mean, for years, me and April, we made sure we took vacations every year with the kids. And we were, we were careful to do that. And we focused on it. We wanted to make memories with them. Because my family, when I was a kid, April, her family always went on vacations. They would go to the beach for a couple weeks. And so they'd spend some time there. And they had a good, those were fond memories of her. My family's vacations were the thing of horror movies. They were terrible. 
I mean, we went on one to Virginia Beach, and it was an absolute disaster where my dad ended up throwing a fit and yelling at everybody the whole week and cars breaking down. And then we tried once more to go to West Virginia, and that was even worse. And so after that, we, our family just said, you know what? We're not vacation people. And I never had good memories with that, but I wanted my kids to. So we would, I mean, we would work hard to save up for it. We would, especially when we, in your college years, we didn't have any money. So your vacation is, hey, let's go to Walmart and uh, do what you can. But we made sure to make that a priority. And then several years ago, uh, I was lucky enough to win a trip to Florida. And uh, just me in April spent a week in Florida. And about the, the fourth day, we thought, we need this often where it's just us. And so now uh, we make sure every year we take a vacation just us. This year, because we're going to Jamaica, we're going to take a couple mini vaca- a couple weekends away just us. But we, we make sure that those are important. And vacations are important. But in the scheme of eternity, is that really what matters to God? Well, I'd say somewhat. Because we need refreshment. There's the, 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 day of the, the principle of the Sabbath rest. So we need refreshment. We need reconnection with our family. So yes, that is important. But if that's what our life is always focused on, we're focused on the wrong things. So what really does matter to God? And what do we really care about? Now if you study your scripture, you'll, you'll notice that there are two types of people that God is looking for. Two types of people that God is focused on searching for throughout the world. Now, the first category of people that God is looking for are those who are fully committed to Him. Those who are fully dedicated to serving Him, to obeying Him, to living for Him, to pleasing God. And we can see that throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, there was a king named King Asa. And one time, King Asa was attacked from one of his neighbors to the north. Now, King Asa was a a good king. He was an established king. He'd been king for a while. And he'd been in battle many times. And every time he'd been in battle, he'd been successful because he had an incredible uh, battle strategy. What he would do is whoever, whatever side he was being attacked from, he would arrange his troops to repel the attack. And then he would pray to God. And he'd say, God, we need you to fight for us. And God always did. And as a result, King Asa never lost. One time he was attacked by a much superior group uh, from Ethiopia, a much larger group. And so once again, he arranged his troops. He prayed to God. And look what happened. In Second Chronicles 14, verse 9, it says, And there came against, out against them Zerah, the outnumbered, but that doesn't matter. We need you to fight for us because if you're fighting for us, it doesn't matter if we have a greater army than them or if it's just one guy out there with a bubble gum. We're going to win. God, fight for us. So that was Asa's prayer. And look what God did in verse number 12. So the Lord smote the Ethiopians before Asa. This was, this was his, his, his habit. This is what always happened. He would be attacked. He would arrange his soldiers. They would start going to battle. He would pray to God, God, we need you to fight for us. God would answer his prayer, fight for him, and they always won. He never lost a battle until several years later, King Asa, he, he's older. He's more established, and he's, this other king attacks him from the north. And this time, Asa, he's a little bit older now. He's a little bit more conservative now. He's got a little bit more to lose now. So instead, he is reluctant 
to fight. Instead of going to battle, instead of arranging his soldiers and praying to God, he goes to the king of Syria. And he pays the king of Syria to attack his enemy from the east side. That way, Asa risks nothing. He lets someone else do the fighting for him, but God was watching. And he knows all about the hostile king in the north attacking Asa. And he's disappointed when Asa takes the comfortable way out. And he sends a prophet to Asa named Hananiah. Look what Hananiah tells him in Second Chronicles 16. God sends a prophet to Asa and says, because you didn't fully commit to God, because you didn't trust God like you had in the past, you're going to lose. You're always going to be in battle now. He says, you know, you, you fought the Ethiopians before. They were bigger than you, and God beat, beat them for you. You fought other armies who were more powerful than you, and every time you won because you relied on God, this time you relied on someone else. And so God, he knew the predicament that Asa was in. It was a chance for Asa to express faith. It was a chance for Asa to be fully committed to God. And the prophet says that God was searching for someone that he could use for God's glory. Someone fully committed to him. Someone of faith. Asa had been that person. But when it really mattered, he backed out. When he really mattered, he wasn't committed and he lacked faith. God is looking for people who are fully committed to him. And we see the reason why in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, of course, is the record of Jesus telling three parables. The very famous parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And so whenever Jesus in Scripture, if you study it, whenever Jesus would teach in parables, he would always tell a parable, and then either to the group or privately to his apostles, but recorded in Scripture for us, he would explain the parable. He would say, hey, this is what I meant by the parable of the sower and the wheat. This is what I meant by the parable of the whatever. So he would teach a parable, then he would explain the parable. But in Luke chapter 15, Jesus doesn't pause between stories. He just says one after the other after the other because he's proving a point. He is, he is telling something. He doesn't, he doesn't explain. He just goes from one story to the next. Why is that? Well, that's what we're going to look at tonight. So look in Luke 15, starting in verse number 1. He was hardcore crazy. I'm going to be honest with you. And he was, and there was, a, there was a man in our church who, who he he had some issues in in his in his marriage, and he he committed some infidelity, and he he repented of it, and his wife was forgiven him, and they were working on their marriage, and he was trying to be restored, and you know it was it was a difficult situation, but we were we were working through it. He wasn't a leader or anything; he was just a man in the church, and so we're trying to help him and encourage him and help his family and help his kids. But there's this one guy that came to me in the pastor because I was a youth pastor time, and he's just yelling at us like he's furious. And we're like, why are you so mad? He goes, because y'all went out to dinner with him the other night. I'm like, so? He goes, well, the Apostle Paul says we're not even supposed to eat with sinners. I'm like, well, Jesus did. And if we're not supposed to eat with sinners, we're all eating alone. 
was my argument. So that's what the Pharisees were doing here. They were, they were criticizing Jesus for eating with these sinners, eating with these publicans. And so, yes, Jesus is teaching, and there's publicans and there's sinners. There's the unsaved there, the ones who are searching, the ones who are they're present. But he's really directing his teaching at the Pharisees. He's trying to get a point across to them. We can, we can see why. Again, what man of you have any hundred sheep? If he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in, in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it. And when he hath found it, he, leave, he layeth it on his shoulders. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one... Telling these parables, he is he is really speaking not to the the the, the unsaved and the, the the non-religious publicans and sinners there. He is speaking to the religious elite. He's speaking to the upper class of society, the people who had money, the people who had power, the people who had prestige, and in their minds, being a shepherd was a lowly trade. Shepherds were second-class citizens. They were considered unclean because most of the time because of the work that they had to do. And so the Pharisees, they can't identify with this guy because they would never be a shepherd. They would never, if they had sheep, they would hire a dirty shepherd to do their job. So Jesus knows that these, these Pharisees, they look at these shepherds as second-class citizens, so he, he chooses to tell a story, get their attention. He starts by saying, which of you, if you were a shepherd, immediately think, well, that's not us. We would never be a shepherd. We would never do that. So no matter what follows, it doesn't matter because they wouldn't do it. They don't have sheep, and if they did, they hire someone to do it. While they are thinking about how disgusting a shepherd is, he tells a story about a shepherd who loves his sheep. Now, if you'll notice, look again at verse 4. What man, if you have a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them? The sheep didn't wander off. He lost him. The sheep didn't go. It wasn't the sheep's fault in Jesus' parable. It's the shepherd's fault. The shepherd, now maybe the sheep did wander off, but it's the shepherd's fault because he wasn't watching him. So this shepherd, who loves his sheep, he loses this sheep. Now that's unusual for this culture because normally they wouldn't admit some, that they had done something wrong. They would say, the sheep got lost, or the sheep wandered off. They wouldn't say, it's my fault. I'm taking responsibility. And so the, they, they usually would blame on the sheep. So this isn't really... A, even a good shepherd, he's losing sheep. He's taking responsibility for things that they didn't want, want to. So not only is this a shepherd, so he's too low for the Pharisees to really identify with, but he's a bad shepherd that if they had hired him, they'd have fired him because he, he doesn't do his job very well. But this shepherd loves sheep. According to the parable, how many sheep does the shepherd have? hundred sheep. How many did he lose? One. What shepherd leaves 99 perfectly good sheep out in the field? Bible doesn't say anybody's watching them. Bible doesn't say he took them back to the town and put them in the corral and made sure they were safe. He just left those 99 to go find that one 
sheep who he lost. Most of us, and we, you know, we say, well, oh, well, coyotes got to eat. I've got 99 more. Sheep have babies. I'll have more eventually. But he, he loved his sheep. So he, he leaves the other 99 out in the open. He leaves them alone. He goes into the wilderness to get that one that he lost. And he doesn't bring them to safety first. He leaves them in potential danger to go find that one. And when he finds that one, he reprimands him and he gets a switch and he just waylays that thing because it did wrong. No. He lovingly puts it on his shoulders, carries it home, and then doesn't just say, I'm glad you're back. He calls all of his friends together. Says, hey, everybody, I lost one lousy sheep, but I found him. So come rejoice with me. He throws a party to celebrate the fact that he brought back one sheep. Why? Because he's happy. He is so happy, he throws a party. But then Jesus tells another parable. Look at verse number 8. Either... He told a story about a shepherd. The Pharisees can't relate to that. Then he tells a story about a woman. They can't relate to that either because... Shepherds were second-class citizens. Women were property. They were, they, were, they were not really worth anything to the Pharisees in this culture. Now, I don't agree with that. That was wrong. But in their culture, women were just, they were there to have babies and take care of kids. And so now he's telling a story about a woman. Well, they can't relate to her either. He's talking about a poor woman to these upper-class men. And so this woman, she has ten coins, and she loses one of them. Now, coins were rare for people to have in this time. Matter of fact, a lot of uh, Bible historians believe that coins that women would have in order to keep them because they didn't use them very often, in order to make sure they stayed safe, and they would, they would make jewelry out of them. So if this woman w- lost a coin, she, lo- she lost an earring. You ever lost an earring? April loses earrings all the time, and I find them in the weirdest places. Like, I found your earring in the driveway. I don't know why. But that's where I found it. So this woman, she... Now, we're like, an earring. Who cares about an earring? But to her, this was valuable. This was important. This was something she desired to have. And so she lost something important to her. And when she loses it, she scours the house until she finds it. And when she she finds it, what does she do? She throws a party. Why? Because she's happy. Because she found what she had lost. Then Jesus tells a third story. Verse number 11, and he said, So father has two sons, and one gets lost. Now, father doesn't know where he is. He chose to get lost, but he, he comes to his dad, says, I want my inheritance. I'm sick of you, dad. And dad gives him his money, and he leaves. Now, again, in Jewish culture, this is a humongous insult to the father. He has basically come to his dad and said, Dad, I wish you were dead. Just give me the money that is coming to me when you die, and we'll be done with each other. I'll go my way, you do what you're going to do, and we'll never have to see each other again. Now, most fathers wouldn't do this. They would get rid of the son, but this father had compassion. So he, he divides his, his estate up. He gives this younger son what was coming to him, and the son's gone. Now, if this had happened in you know, any other family, to the father, that son is dead. He can go away. He can make more money. He can starve to death. Daddy doesn't care because he insulted the family. And so this man, this, when he comes to himself, the son 
he knows coming back to dad is going to be difficult because he, he insulted his father. His father isn't wanting him to come home. He thinks this. So he goes home humbly thinking, I'll just, I'll beg my dad's forgiveness and maybe he'll, he'll have enough grace, have enough mercy to just, just let me be a servant. I don't want to be a son anymore. I just, I'll serve him. I'll work for that. I still won't be in the family, but I'll, I'll just, I know my dad takes care of his servant, so I'll go and I'll just, I'll, I hopefully my dad will take care of me. So he, he goes home with his speech rehearsed, and as he's, he's going home, daddy's watching. And daddy sees his son coming home. And he doesn't say, hey, go tell that worthless, no good so-and-so to get out of here. He doesn't even send his servants to say, your dad wants to know what you want. He runs to his son, kisses him, clothes him, gives a ring, makes him a son again. Says, you, you, you're back where you belong. But he ran to his son. So running is not something a typical landowner would do in this culture. Because they, they were landowners, they had money, they had power, they had prestige. And if they ran, that's why I don't run because I own land. Uh, just that's throwing that out there. But to run, they would have to hike up their robes and show their ankles. And that was shameful. And they're like, oh, ankles. Yeah. If a man showed his ankles then, it was, it was shameful. Look, I can't even show my ankles. I got, I got shoes on my ankles for my socks. But so to lift up his robe and run to his son was a shameful act. Something no self-respecting, powerful landowner would do. So once again, the Pharisees can't relate to this guy because... Number one, they think, well, if my son does that, he ain't coming home. Number two, if he did come home, I ain't running out to meet him because what he did. And if I did want to go meet him, I'm not running because everyone would see and it would be an embarrassment. It would bring shame to my name. It would be something that they, it would be undignified. So this hero is a hero that the Pharisees can't relate to. When the son is found, the father throws a party. Why? Because he's happy. He's happy that what he had lost is back. So all three of these stories have a couple things in common. First, in each story, something of value is lost. A sheep, a coin, a son. Second thing they have in common is each item lost is of great value to the hero of the story. The shepherd loves his sheep. The woman, she needed her coin, and the father loved his son, third, when the lost item is found, the hero is so happy, they throw a party to express their joy. And fourth, the hero of the story isn't someone the Pharisees can relate to. They can't understand what's going on. The shepherd's a second-class citizen. The woman is looked down on, and the father, he, he embarrasses himself publicly. So what is Jesus trying to get across to these men. These are men who thought they knew what mattered to God. They thought them keeping the law. They thought them they're with their self-righteousness. They thought with their fasting there in the day and, and giving alms and their great mighty prayers and their prestige in the community and the fact that everyone knew that they were the super religious of the community. They thought they knew what mattered to God. But they didn't. Jesus is saying, you don't understand what God cares about. They thought 
they were fully committed to God. And they thought they were the only ones that mattered to God. Whenever Jesus would talk to the outcasts of society, the, 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 the sinners and the publicans, the Pharisees would get angry at him. They thought he, since he was calling himself a rabbi, that he diminished the name of God and the dignity of God by associating with such low-life people. And Jesus tells them three parables to tell them that their perception of what God wants and what matters to God was wrong. So he saw the first group of people that matters to God are those that are fully committed to God. But what about the second group? The second group of people that matter to God are those that are lost. Those are the two people God cares about, two groups. Those that are committed and those that are lost. So tonight we've got to ask ourselves, if we're not in the lost group, are we really fully committed? Do we really care about what matters to God? And the fully committed... They're not so proud and self-centered that they think the most important thing in life is them. He is really saying two things to these parables. Lost people matter to God so much that when one is found, all of heaven rejoices. He said it twice in the scriptures. He goes, there is, it is like there is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repenteth. Let, you know, I've always heard preachers say, when, when one sinner gets saved, angels rejoice. That's not what it says. It says, says, rejoice in the presence of angels. Who's in the presence of angels? God is. Those who have gone before us are. So when, when one person gets saved, God and the saints who are already there throw a party. They rejoice because what God was looking for was finally found. They were, he's saying that the fully committed, those that understand this, and they rejoice with God when something that is lost is finally found. They are so committed that they not only rejoice with God, they join in the all-out search with God to find what was lost. Because God, because God loves those that are lost so much, He enlists all of His children to help join in the search to find them. So the question we have to ask ourselves tonight is, are we really fully committed? Are we willing to get involved in the search with God for the lost? We all say we want to see lost get saved. We all say we want sinners to come to repentance. We want missionary missions across the world to be successful and people in run we, we say it. You know, if I asked all of us, hey, do you want people saved? I don't think any of us would say, you know what, no, I'm good. We all want people saved. We say it. But are we really fully committed to doing it? Only the fully committed reach out to the lost. Let's be honest. Every one of us here, we know someone in our life, someone in our neighborhood, someone at work, someone at school, someone in our family that is lost. Are we willing to reach out to them? Well, I don't want to offend them. How offended do you think they're going to be on the day of judgment when they look at you and they're about to be cast in the lake of fire and they look at you and said, you, you knew all along. Why didn't you tell me? 
You know, people say there's no tears in heaven. There are, there are now. There won't be no tears in heaven until God destroys the heaven and the earth, has the day of judgment, and then creates a new heaven and a new earth. Then he wipes away all tears. You know why we're crying? Because we're seeing people that we could have reached cast into hell and we didn't do anything about it. Because we weren't really fully committed. Are we willing to reach out to the lost? Only the fully committed, they help make the worship service a place that is so open and welcoming that it's a place that the lost can get found. You'll say, well, preacher, how can I do that? Y'all do everything yourselves. You make the worship service better by participating in the worship service, by being faithful to it, by singing the songs, by smiling, by shaking hands. Look, when, when visitors come in, by greeting them, saying, hey, it's, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining with us this morning. Not by saying you're in my seat. I don't think that's happened here, but don't ever do that. I'll say, you're in my seat, buddy. I've been sitting there for 20 years. You know, be nice to them. Greet them, talk to them. Are we working in the worship service to make it a place where the loss can get found? Only the fully committed pray diligently for their lost loved ones to find Christ. Only the fully committed think of ways that they can reach out to the lost in their daily lives. And there's ways we can all do this. We can, you know, I love what Brother McCormick does. Some, somebody sends him junk mail with those return paid postage envelopes. You know what he does? He mails them a tract. Say, well, two of them. Say, well, ain't nobody going to get saved from that. We don't know that. Someone opens up some mail processor, opens up that envelope, pulls, and God's been working on their heart, and they, they get a tract telling them that God loves them and they can have a home in heaven one day. Imagine, we don't know how many people Brother McCormick's going to meet in heaven and say, hey, I got saved because you mailed me something. Because we leave a tracks at our, at our waitress's table after we tip them well. Don't be one of these, I've seen it, and so, it makes me so mad. Christians, here's a tip, and give them a tract. No, they, they need money and a tract. So we can, we can invite our, you know, how many times have you been checking out and you're the Holy Spirit? And this happened to me. Checking out at a grocery store and the Holy Spirit pricks my heart and says, why don't you invite your checkout clerk to church? It's gotten so bad, I just go through self-checkout now. So I don't got to worry about it. Yeah, invite myself. But God speaks to us. And it, you don't got to be, hey, while I got you, you're checking out groceries. Don't take up our time. Let me preach to you what the Lord says about the sinner. And, you know, give them the, the Romans road. But you say, hey, we have, a, we have a great, do you believe you got a great church? If you don't think you got a great church, why are you here on a Sunday night? So I'm assuming everyone here thinks we got a great church. So say, hey, we got a great church. Why don't you come be my guest one Sunday morning? Just give, well, they may not, they may not, but they may. But only the fully committed are saying, I'm, I'm willing to do that. See, the problem with these stories is most of us think we're fully committed. I think I'm fully committed. But when I really pray about it and think about it, God says, there's a whole lot of areas in your life you can be more committed to helping reach the lost. We want to be, but we're not. See, what we tend to do is we think being fully committed means taking care of the sheep that are already found. That's not, that's not being fully committed. Fully committed is finding the sheep that are lost. Our life is to be invested in being fully committed to finding lost sheep, lost coins, and lost sons. What matters to God are his children being fully committed to using their lives for the purpose of finding those that are lost. 
This, does, this involves more than just coming to church and praying for the lost sheep, that, that praying lost sheep will wander through this door and be found. Look, do people just wander randomly off the street into churches to get saved? Not often. Especially if anybody's wandering up Guilford, they're really lost. But so they'll say, well, God, just send us the lost sheep. No, we've got to go find them. We've got to go find them and bring them back. And here's the thing. Where are the lost sheep, preacher? They're in your life. They're next door to you. They work with you. You see them in the stores. They're everywhere. Lost sheep are everywhere. We've got to find them, lovingly put them on our shoulders, not literally, and bring them to church. You know, don't come in here with a, you know, I got a sheep preacher. Because I'm going to say, oh, you also got police coming up behind us. Thanks for that. We need to be on the news this time. But we are intentional about sharing our faith, about passing out tracts, about sharing Jesus, inviting loved, lost loved ones to church. We are intentional about helping lost things be found. We have to do more. We have to be more committed. What matters to God must matter to us.